thank you, Hans. It's a delight to be with you and to share with you from God's Word. So why don't I pray that God might help us to understand this and be blessed by it. Uh, thank you, Father, that your Word is a light to our feet and a lamp to our path. And pray today that you might shine this light in any darkness in our lives and may this light lead us to him who gave himself for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's um, been a long time since I finished high school, as you may have guessed. I don't remember high school all that fondly. They weren't my best years. And I say to people, my life began at university. And I didn't like my subjects by and large. I didn't like PE and sport. My two electives were economics and art. I didn't like, I just found economics dull. Art was okay. I didn't have any art skill, but in my class were 18 students, two guys and 16 girls. So I, I, didn't, I didn't mind art. <laughs> I had my first teenage crush in that class. Her name was Kay Seath. Anyway, I'll move on. Um, I didn't like geography. Science I did very badly in. But really, I, I, I didn't like maths. Now, there were some folk here who see the, the beauty of maths that eluded me. Geometry, trigonometry, hieroglyphics, or whatever. Um, I, just, I, I just couldn't see the point of knowing the quadratic equation. It didn't change my life, the quadratic equation. It really hasn't. As you may have guessed, I loved English and history. That, that's that's I loved. And at uni, I did a double history major. I loved it because I mean, maths is just about figures and numbers and how dry, I thought. English and history is about people and ideas and life and triumph and tragedy. It, it's alive. I loved it. So I've come to speak on a book called Numbers. How ironic. Which may suggest it's a book about cold, hard facts and figures. But in fact, it's a book about people. So in fact, a book about God. So an English teacher loves the book of Numbers. Uh, but the book isn't called People, or Israel, or God. It's called Numbers. Well, at least in the English version it's called Numbers, not in the Hebrew version. But it's Numbers not like you read in math. It's Numbers like you read in a census, which comes out every, what, four years? And we wait for the new census with great interest, particularly if we're Christians, to plot the growing decline of our faith in this country. But also the numbers from the census help the government set policies where they distribute money. Hospitals, the environment, schools, um, industry, infrastructure, roads. That, that, it helps us shape our, our future, the census here. So it's that, that, those numbers are important. It tells us who we are in our diversity and about our future. And so those kind of numbers are really important. And that's the book of numbers. It's far more than just a list of names. So I spent a weekend on a book which begins, written 3,500 years ago, and begins with words like these, chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. These are the names of the men who are to assist you, from Reuben, Eliezer, son of Shadua, from Simeon, Shalumiel, son of Zerushaddai, from Judah, Nashan, son of Aminadab, so why are we studying numbers? Three reasons. Number one, it speaks to the church. The Old Covenant Church, the New Testament Church, 
and our church. When Paul writes to Corinth, you know, a deeply troubled church, among other things, flirting with idolatry, he says to them, in effect, don't make the same mistake your forefathers made in the wilderness and died. Don't you make the same mistake they did, or it'll happen to you. He writes in 1 Corinthians, I want you to, chapter 10, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that our fathers were all under the cloud, Numbers 10, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, Numbers 11, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, Numbers 20, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness, Numbers 14. So Paul concludes, Now these things took place as an example for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. So Paul's saying, Israel were God's people. They sinned. They perished. You're God's people. Should you sin like that, you'll perish. So these are God's words for Israel, for the ancient church, and for us. Learn from their mistakes. That is the second point. This book, as you know, is breathed out by God. Uh, Moses wrote it, but really God breathed it out. That we might grow through faith in Christ that we might learn righteousness and be equipped for every good work. This book from God could save your life and will shape your life. It's a book for us to read today. It is powerfully relevant. And third, it's a book that we don't know very well. It's a closed book to most people. Rarely preached on, not often read, uh, which is a shame for the reason I've just given. So this weekend, I want to open this closed book to you and hopefully have you blessed by what it says. Well, let's begin a journey with this book. It is a book, it's about a journey in the, uh, the wilderness, but by and large, they go round and round and round and end up in the same place, the people of Israel. It's called Numbers in our English version. In Hebrew, it's called In the Wilderness, which I think is a better title. It's um, that place from where they were, they were set free from slavery in Egypt on the way to the promised land and that kind of middle ground where they walked to get there, which is the wilderness, a barren place, the place between prison and paradise. I think not a bad description of where we find ourselves today. He asked Hans, how's your week been? Mike, I felt like I'd been in the wilderness. We'd moved from prison, from being slaves to sin and Satan and the fear of death, set free by the blood of the Lamb, and we're on our way to our promised land, just like them, but through the wilderness, through tough times. There are temptations, frustrations, church conflicts, bullying pastors. There's depression, disenchantment, disillusionment. Despair, disease, the wilderness. And around the corner was paradise. 
I've got four kids. My youngest is Lauren. Um, she's now 27. Uh, when she was seven, she got type 1 diabetes. And still today, she takes three injections a day, and she must be careful to get the, not to do them and get the dosage right. It can be, it can be fatal if she doesn't. When she was a young teenager, she was not taking her very first flight on a plane all by herself, I think from Melbourne to Sydney. She was excited and a bit nervous and distracted and couldn't remember whether she would taken the right dosage or not. And that could be serious. So Sarah said to her, just stop, honey, just stop and think. Try to put your mind back to when you took the shot. Do you remember it? Oh, mum, she says, I, I think I took the right dosage, but hey, if I didn't and I die... I'll go to heaven, which is very sweet. Uh, not a, a great comfort to us at the time. We'd rather like having her around. But the point is, diabetes is part of the wilderness. And she's on her way to paradise, to heaven. She was right. Now, it's not the whole story for us, the wilderness. Our sins are forgiven. God's our loving Father. We've just sung that. And we have peace and joy. We're here with our brothers and sisters. It's terrific. It's terrific. But still, I think it's a fair description of our life between prison and paradise through the wilderness. Let's begin. I just want to look at two things with you tonight. First, God's census. Numbers opens, it is 14 months after their freedom from Egypt and crossing the Red Sea. They're beside Mount Sinai, about to enter Canaan. So the first words are from the Lord through Moses to have all the men, over 20, counted, were able to fight and occupy the land. Verse 2, take a census of the entire Israelite community by their clans and their ancestral houses, containing the names of every, every male one, of, one by one. So he picks every clan leader to assemble all the men in the clan who fit that, that criteria, um, you may have picked up, or maybe you didn't, it didn't include Levi. God has a special plan for them, a job for them, we'll see later. So what he does is he takes the tribe of Joseph, takes the two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, to make up the 12 tribes. Now see a couple of things. First, the promised land is just that. It's a promised land. It's a gift from God. But a land they have to fight for. They're going to take a bunch of disorganized refugees and make them into a, an efficient fighting force. And when you read Judges or, the, or Joshua, or the, each tribe's given a portion of the land which they have to fight and to occupy. And secondly, Moses does not call for volunteers, volunteers. All men over 20 must fight, unless disabled or newly married. I go every year to Singapore, and I teach there, and as you may know, they have a compulsory national service for men between, I think, 17 and 40. A friend of mine came here for uni and uh, skipped national service, hasn't been back. If he tries to go back, at custom in the airport, he'll be arrested. It's compulsory national service, as it was back then. So to be a man in Israel, whether, unless you're disabled or newly married, is to be a fighter, a warrior. 
no exemptions. Now, of course, we're different today. Uh, we don't fight as soldiers with swords and spears or bullets and, uh, and bombs. Uh, when we get to our promised land, there's no enemy to subdue. Christ has defeated all our enemies. So things are different now. But don't think from that that we're not fighting and we're not warriors. As you all know, we're involved in spiritual warfare. We are battling every day. And unlike Israel, there are no <coughs> exemptions. Every man and woman, under over 20, boy, girl, whatever, able or disabled, are all fighting. But our weapons are spiritual. We preach the gospel. We give an answer to the hope that's in us. We say no to sin and yes to righteousness. We love each other and love the world. We are fighters. Dave had his father walk out on him when he was a young boy. Hadn't seen his dad in 30 years and couldn't care less about his father. Didn't want to meet him. Dave had a sermon in church about forgiveness and the need to forgive. He didn't want to. His dad walked out. But Dave is a fighter. And he rang his father. Ben is a builder. He looks forward every year to four weeks holiday. He planned this year to go to Tassie with some mates and have a four week holiday there. Then Bert heard about a flood in Ethiopia and the Christian village was just wiped out. Church wiped out, houses destroyed. A call went out for helpers, mainly builders, to give four weeks. Ben, ben looked forward to his holiday, but Ben's a fighter. And Tazzy will be there next year. Susan's at uni. She uh, the highlight of her week is Wednesday afternoon playing netball with her friends. She saw an ad in the church. The local primary school needed primary school teachers for kids who've never heard about Jesus to teach on Wednesday afternoons. She loves her netball, but she's a fighter. I'll find netball on some other day or maybe next year. Annie's in her early 30s. Single, never had a boyfriend. Went on a Christian dating website. Found Tom. They went out on a date. King Christian, kind, generous, good-looking youth leader. On their third date, he tried to pressure her into going to bed with him. She said no and ended the relationship. She's a fighter. Christians are fighters. We are warriors, spiritual warriors. That's the first thing. We're involved in spiritual warfare, all of us, every day. Second, remember the Levites. God, Moses says, don't include them in the census. Verse 48, don't register the, or take a census of the tribe of Levi with the other Israelites, appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony. They're not to join the army, 
or fight for the promised land, they have a special job, which is to care for that tent that was in the middle of the camp, which was symbolically God's dwelling place. In that tent was the, uh, the altar, the Holy of Holies, and my symbol, God, that's where God lived amongst his people. That's their job, to care for that. On their journey, they would take, they'd t- take the tent down, then p- put it up again. And then they'd put the tent up, and Israel camped all on the four sides around the tent, and between them and the tent itself are the Levites. There's the, there's the tabernacle, the Levites around that, and then the people on four sides around. Verse 50, they are to transport the tabernacle and all its articles, take care of it, and camp around it. Because they're to protect Israel from the tabernacle. From God, lest God's anger break out amongst them and destroy them, and they're to protect the tabernacle from the people. Verse 51. Any unauthorized person who comes near it must be put to death. So the Levites act like a kind of human electric fence around the tabernacle to keep the people out. That's true, of course, in, with many leaders. You can't, you can't go to 10 Downing Street in London, but you can't you can get a, into Downing Street. Try and visit Joe Biden in the White House and try to get in. Well, they'll shoot first and ask who you are later. How much more so then with the the high king of heaven? You can't just barge in there to God's holy presence. That's why we must read Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Lest we think that God has changed God's, well, a bit less strict nowadays. He's kind of softened in the way he treats people. Uh, to mention my kids, uh, when they were young, we had a rule about watching television. Uh, Monday to Friday, uh, one show per week. Weekends, whatever, but Monday to Friday, one show per week. That was the two older boys. By the time we got to Lauren on fourth, it was one show at a time, <laughs> which would cheese my kids off because we just got kind of slacker and softer as we, as we got older, as parents tend to do. Maybe guys like that too. All this thing about Levites and wrath bursting out and you can't come, you'll die if you touch the tabernacle. God is, he's just softened as he got older. There's a verse in Deuteronomy which says this. You must have a full and honest weight so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. And we worked in Pakistan and we go down, I go down the bazaar to shop because the men... There's just the men. There's no women there. The men do the shopping, the men, the shopkeepers. And you buy your veggies. And remember the days when you used to actually get a, a solid weight? And there'd be a weight of one kilogram or half a kilogram. The trick in Pakistan is to get a knife and carve a hole into the weight and pull out some of it. So it says, and then stuff, you, know, you, just, you fill it in again. So the weight says one kilogram. In fact, you get half a kilogram. God detests that. Those who do that won't enter the land. I shop like you do at my local Coles and Woolies. And I use the self-serve checkout. Here's a clue for you. As they had to rip off Woolies. Here's what you do. Take notes. You buy an expensive item like mangoes, 
and then you tap carrots, which is cheaper. They did a survey of 50 uni students, 50. 38 admitted, that's what they do. 75%. God detests that. Those who do that will never enter the land. God hasn't changed. He's still the holy God. That's why you should read Numbers. To remind yourself God is holy and still takes sin very, very seriously. So, by putting the Levites there, he reminds them every day of his holiness and their sinfulness and the need for a mediator, but more of that in a moment. Well, that's Numbers 1 in a nutshell. The census, the Levites. <coughs> I'm going to draw from that two applications. First, Numbers matter to God. Verse 46. All those registered numbered 603,550. That's just the men over 20. Now you add to that all the men, women, kids, you're talking 2 to 3 million people. That's the size of Brisbane. That's a lot of people. 2 to 3 million. Now some sort of think that's probably maybe hyperbole. How does 3 million people gather round a tent. Well, in Mecca, half, one half million Muslims gather around the Kaaba every year. So it, it, it may be a slight exaggeration, but the point is um, there were a lot of people. The first census in the, what's called the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, is in Exodus 1, the first census, uh, which says, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. When they left Canaan to, for, for Egypt because of a famine, there were 70 of them. Just 70. God made a promise to Abraham. One day your descendants will be more than the sand on the seashore, the stars in the sky. There'll be a vast multitude. So these lists of boring numbers are saying to us, God keeps his promise. And one day there'll be, as you know, around the throne, a crowd too great to number. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of believers from across the world and across history around the throne praising God. Numbers matter to God. That's why I'm a believer, actually, in conventions, like Katoomba. Again, to mention my daughter, I don't have favourite kids, I don't keep mentioning Lauren. <laughs> Don't like it very much. No, I, I love it a lot. Uh, when she she uh, spent two years as an apprentice for the Christian Union at the Australian Catholic University in Melbourne. The university has about 9,000 students. The CU is 30. That's one in 300. Now, there are other Christian kids, I'm sure, at the university. But that, that's very, you can feel very small. 9,000 people, 30 students who are Christian. That, you feel pretty small. So as you may know, every year AFES has a conference in Canberra called NTE, the National Training Event, in December. Last year there were 2,000 students there. Now you don't feel quite so small. That's very encouraging. There were 2,000 keen students proclaiming Christ. Terrific. I love these stories about what God's doing in China and India and, and Iran. 
Let's say more people have come to Christ in Iran in the last 20 years than the previous 1,300. Wonderful stories of growth of the church in Iran and across Africa, South America. It's terrific. Terrific. That should encourage us. There'll be thousands around the throne on that day. It's very encouraging to hear about these numbers. It's a great encouragement. It's also a warning. Numbers starts and ends, as we'll see later on, with a census of Israel's fighting men, those who lead the people into the land. But we'll see that most of those in the first census aren't in the second. They've all died in the wilderness, not of old age, but of sin and rebellion. They fall along the way. So, be encouraged by numbers, but don't be duped by them. Don't be seduced by them. It doesn't matter who starts the, the journey through the land. It matters who finishes. I read a while ago of a Chinese uh, girl who came to Monash University in Melbourne, uh, became a believer there, did her PhD, uh, planned to go back to China but chose not to for two years to stay on to work with other Chinese converts at the university. She said this, and I quote, some statistics suggest that 80% of Chinese students who became Christian while studying in the West will fall away from faith after they return to their own country. I feel the eager responsibility to, to help young Christians establish a solid foundation for their faith in Jesus. I want to help them learn to trust and rely on the living God to face all the difficulties and temptations to stop following Jesus. 80% fall away. My father-in-law was a missionary in Pakistan for 38 years doing evangelism. He saw in 38 years five converts. Three fell away. That's one convert per 19 years of almost non-stop evangelism. Three fell away. You read the magazines, great stories of how Muslims come to faith through dreams and visions, and it's wonderful. You never hear of the high attrition rate of Muslim converts. Many go back to Islam. Persecution, suffering, or just the temptations of the West. So these numbers are a great encouragement, but secondly to us, a great warning to endure in the wilderness. Secondly and finally, it's good to read numbers. And numbers one, just to remind ourselves, in a sense, how good we have it here today. Here we are, as God's people, smack dab in the middle of the tabernacle. In the holy place. In fact, we are the tabernacle. We are the holy place. Because God dwells in us. How good is that? Paul wrote to the Corinthians, Don't you yourselves know that your God's sanctuary, his temple, holy of holies, that the Spirit of God lives in you. 
and our Lord died on the cross to make us worthy and acceptable to God, the temple curtain was torn in two. The electric fence was switched off. The Levites told, sorry guys, you're out of a job. You're redundant. We don't need you anymore. Because now in our Lord, we come into God's presence all the time. That's fantastic. Our Lord told a parable one time, which began with the words, two men went up, the temple, went up to the temple to pray. Isn't it great that we don't have to do that? Isn't that great? I'll tell you what I do. Here's my morning routine. I wake up pretty early before my wife, she sleeps on, and I just get up early in my pyjamas. I boil some water. Now here's a confession, don't tell my friends in Melbourne. I make a cup of instant coffee. I sip my coffee, pull out my Bible, say my prayers, and talk to my Heavenly Father. It is for me, I think, by and large, the best time of the day. I love it. I sit in his presence all the time. It's wonderful. No Levites. No don't touch. No stay away. But come in. Come near and live with me. I still take sin very seriously. I still fight to be holy. But what wonderful access we have to our Father, to the Lord Jesus Christ. I never go to 10 Downing Street, or the White House, or even the Lodge. And frankly, I couldn't care less. I come every day into the home of the High King of Heaven. That thrills my soul. This is a great book to read for God's people. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for the book of Numbers. We thank you firstly that for your incredible grace in drawing countless people into your church. That back then the number, while large, was nothing compared to what you've done since then in drawing people from every tribe, nation and tongue to be your people and to gather around your throne. We pray for ourselves and for them that you would not let the evil one snatch them out of your hand, but you'll keep them to the last day. Thank you too for the intimacy we know of you as Father. We come into your presence. Please help us never to take that for granted, to rejoice in that, and keep us as your, as your people being warriors, fighting sin, and pursuing holiness. We pray this for our good and for your glory. Amen.